from St. Luke's Gospel, that when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here today. I mentioned last week in my sermon um, that uh, reading Scripture, studying Scripture in particular, is kind of like peeling an onion. It was an image that my seminary professor gave to me, that the surface meaning of Scripture is the surface meaning, but as you dig down, you begin to discover more and more things, more nuance, more practical application, because frankly, studying Scripture has one goal in mind, and that is practical application, right? Having it change your life for good. And I think this is actually a big issue this idea of an onion, the peeling of an onion, because lots of people hear texts over and over again, particularly if you're a churchgoer and have been for a while, and you're so used to hearing the text that what's actually there kind of rolls over you. You don't notice the, the real detail, the real uh, power of what's being said. For example, um, in our text this morning, we read that Luke, te- or Jesus rather, tells a parable this lesson doesn't sound like a parable. I'll get to that in a minute, but it's a parable, something I'll be honest with you, I never noticed until this past week. And what you see with Scripture, when, you're, when you kind of dig in, you begin to see things that you didn't see at first. For example, last, last weekend I preached on this healing miracle of a woman who'd been bent over for 18 years. And you think, well, okay, it's a, Jesus heals people all the time. He's always doing good things for people. Thanks, Jesus. That's a great miracle. What a big help, man. High five, right? That's what we hear. What we discovered, though, was something far more profound as we peel the onion a little bit last week that the real text of the, of the story is about the nature of evil and how the demonic is behind all human suffering. So today, we're going to continue in Luke 14 to peel the onion away a little bit on this parable of the wedding feast with two points that aren't immediately obvious, but they will be once we peel away the onion. <laughs> the first point is the party that you were made for and that I was made for and the way that we are invited. The party you were made for, and the way that were we invited. So the first thing I'm going to look at from this morning is the party, the celebration, you might say, that we were made for. Here's a question for you, my budding Bible scholars. What was Jesus' first miracle? It wasn't a healing. It wasn't casting out demons. It wasn't feeding 5,000 people or even raising the dead. He did all those things. But the first miracle that Jesus performed was a celebration, a party. If you know your scripture, Matthew, again, you've heard this before, probably. Matthew chapter, Matthew tells us that uh, there's a wedding, a couple having a wedding, and they want the, the parties going full strength. And these parties would go for days, longer than parties at Penn State, I might add. Um, they would go for days on end, these nonstop parties, people having a great time, celebrating, keep that, that word in mind, singing and dancing, enjoying each other's company drinking too much. Actually, if you go back and look at it, it's there. And then the wine runs out, right? The party stops. The music is, the power is off. It's a huge embarrassment for this bride and groom. If you don't know, in the first century in Judaism, for the wine to run out meant you either didn't have the money or you didn't plan for it. Either way, uh, it's a huge, huge social failing and a source of shame. So what would Jesus do? 
Remember those old bracelets? I said this morning they're dangerous. I shouldn't, that probably was overstating the case. But they can, those, they allow, those, when we say, what would Jesus do? It allows us to say what he should have done, not what did he do, right? So what would Jesus do in this context? Well, he'd tell them all, okay, you guys have had enough. You've been partying since 3 o'clock in the afternoon yesterday. It's time to wrap, catch an Uber and wrap it up, right? That's what Jesus would do. But that's not actually what he did. Jesus being the good Episcopalian, he keeps the party going. He turns water into wine, really good wine, the best wine of the night, and the party continues rocking and rolling. Party foul averted. Yeah, Jesus, high five again. Man, hang on, let's peel the onion a minute. And notice something critically important, critically important. Jesus' first miracle, his first miracle is a celebration. It's a party. Don't miss the importance of that. Why? Well, if you know anybody who's ever, the, a person's inaugural act, the first thing you do in a, in, in, a, in a new thing that you take on, right? A political campaign or a new job or a marriage or a friendship, whatever it might be, the first thing that you do, good or bad, <laughs> is going to color everything else that comes after it, right? Everything you, the first thing you do is going to color your work, set the tone, you might say. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Ron DeSantis this past week launched his, his uh, campaign for governor, I guess. He has this uh, Top Gov video. I thought it was kind of corny, I'll be honest with you, but hey, look, it's okay. Uh, you know, rip, ripping off Top Gun, okay, fine. He, he admitted it. I think it was his, his son's idea. The point I want you to see here is not about Ron DeSantis. That's not the point. Uh, the point that I want you to understand is that that inaugural act is going to color the campaign for the rest of the campaign season. When you're the first thing you do, listen, this is the point. The first thing you do creates a story, story sets the narrative, creates expectation, points forward to what's to come. And so Jesus' first miracle, don't miss it. It's not a prayer session or healing or even raising the dead. His first miracle is a party, which means that Christianity is meant to be I'm going to say it, a party. Christianity is meant to be a celebration. It's at the root of everything that Jesus does. He sets the stage with this. And you know, for so many people, Christianity, maybe even some of you, I don't know, Christianity, for a lot of people, isn't a celebration at all. For a lot of people, it is drudgery, it's hard work, it's moralism, trying to prove yourself before God, which, by the way, you can't. What I want you to see here is that if Christianity is called to be a celebration, then drudgery and moralism and proving yourself could not be further from the truth. Yeah, the world is suffering. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, we blow it. Yes, we're sinners. We talk about that here a lot. But the astounding thing, the, the key to this text for today, but the Bible claims is that one, all of the suffering of this world is temporary. That when Jesus returns, the world will be reconstituted, the dead shall be resurrected with real physical bodies, that you and I shall stand shoulder to shoulder with those that have gone before us with real, new, resurrected physical bodies. Evil will be judged. Heaven and earth will be reunited once again. Read about it in the book of Revelation. Everything will be put back to the way that God intended. Life will be perfect. Life will be joyful. Life will be, wait for it, a party, a celebration. 
the important thing to see here is that if heaven is the goal, and it is, then that changes, it changes everything, not just for the future, but for the way we live our lives now. And that's my first point, that heaven is the party, the celebration, the feast, if you will, that you and I were made for. What is the purpose of life? There it is, to be saved and spend eternity with God in heaven. To keep your heads up and your eyes focused forward on Jesus the prize. Somebody once said, and I don't know who it was, might have been Jordan Peterson, might have been my mom, I can't remember. <laughs> it's a pretty wide, <laughs> anyway. Someone once said to me, you know, this world is neither the end, this world is neither the end or the goal. It is a preparation. It is a preparation. This life is a preparation for the party, listen, of a lifetime. And if that's true, and it is, and at least my second point then, well then how do we get in? This is where we shift into today's text for today. If, if, if biblically speaking, according to Jesus' own ministry, life is a celebration that we are called and invited to, well then how do we get in? How do we, how do we get invited to this party? Notice something really cool here. I'd never noticed this before this past week when I was studying the text in verse 7. We read this text out of Luke, this parable of the wedding banquet, you know, take the lower place and all that sort of stuff. I always read that as a, even in seminary, and I've studied this before, I always read it as sort of an ethical prescription, right? Be humble. Take the lower place. Suck it up, kid, right? That's why I've always read it. That's not what's here. Look at what it says in verse 7, that Jesus told a parable. That's huge. That changes the whole thing. Luke says, Jesus told them a parable. And it's a strange one. It's a strange parable. Parables typically are stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, you know the parables if you've been in the church any amount of time. This one does not sound, it does not read like a parable, but it is a parable. And we only know that because Luke tells us it's a parable. And that's important because when you know it's a parable, parabolos is the Greek, it tells you something important. That this is not just an ethics lesson. This is not just a way to be polite. This is not just an exercise in, you know, pretending that you're really more humble than you are. Oh, no. If you are invited to the wedding seat, take the lowest seat, Jesus says. If you are the invitor, notice this too. If you're invited, take the lowest seat. If you're the invitor, invite the poor, the lame, and the humble because they cannot repay you. But let's peel this onion for a minute. Verse 7, now he, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited to the wedding. And an interesting thing about a parable is it always works like, a parable always works like this. First, it's fiction. It's not a real story. It's a story. It's a fictitious story. And in a parable, there are two characters, God and you. So a parable tells you when you read, this is a parable, you got to take your glasses off, put your parable gla glasses on and say, you are in this story and so is God. So here's the question. Who are you and who is God in the parable of the wedding banquet? Here it is. I'm going to tell you. Today's your lucky day. God is the groom and you are the guest. The question is, which guest are you? Jesus describes a wedding party, first century Jewish wedding, pretty typical stuff. Uh, the guests are all jockeying for position. 
we all know, you've all been to parties like this before. Hey, we've got to talk to so-and-so. We've got to make some, you know this, you guys live in the world. And they're at a wedding guest, and here's the, the bride and the groom are at the head of the table at this, in this parable, and the guests all align themselves on the sides of the table. And the closer you are to the head, the more important you are. And so the, and at the end of the table is the groom, God, and then all around the table are the guests, you. And everybody there, Jesus said, is trying to be a big shot. Everybody there is trying to prove, listen to this, this is the key, trying to prove themselves to other people. The closer you were to the groom, the more important you were. The closer you are to God, the more important you are. But here's the danger. This is where Jesus' warning comes from. It's subtle, but it's super cool. Whenever you try to prove yourself, Jesus says, there's someone who's going to come along and beat you to it. I had a friend of mine when I was in New Jersey, I've told you this before, he had a $15 million house. This is 20 years ago. $15 million house in Little Silver around the corner from where we lived. And he was just, you know, riding, just felt great about himself. He told everybody what a wonderful guy he was. He was a bit of a blowhard, but that's another matter. Until somebody down the street bought a house for $20 million. And then he was just, why? Because he had based his worth on what he had. Jordan Peterson, who I'm a big fan of, he says, he reminds us that, this is great, the only person that we can compare ourselves, the only person that we should compare ourselves to is you. The only person that you should compare yourself to is you. You are the only person that's ever lived with the same personality as you, the same family as you, the same genetics as you, the same strengths as you, the same weaknesses that you have. You are the only person who is just like you. You are the only person, Peterson says, to whom you should compare yourself. A year ago, two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, whatever, fill in the blank. It's good advice. It's good advice to compare yourself to who you were before, to compare yourself to you, because to compare yourself to other people is, the quote Teddy Roosevelt said, that comparison to others is the thief of joy. I love that. Think about it. When you compare, and, and if you think about it, obviously, and, and you'll see this in the text, when you compare yourself to others, rather than comparing yourself to you, when you compare yourself to others, when you scramble to get to the head of the table to be seen, one of two things happens. Either you're comparing yourself to people that have what you don't have, which creates jealousy and bitterness, and people, and people wanting equity. I deserve what I don't have. It's mine, and I'm going to take it if I have to. If you compare yourself to others, then you are jealous and envious of those who have what you don't. But also, if you compare yourself to others, then you look at those that have less than you, and you are contemptuous and resentful of them. See my point? Comparing yourself to others, Jesus' point here, is toxic. It is a poison. Jesus says, save yourself the heartache. When you are invited to a wedding feast, he says, go and sit in the lowest place. And that wedding feast is heaven. See, friends, here's the thing. This is what I, the point of this parable from today. It's a parable. 
You and I cannot earn our way onto the guest list of heaven. You and I cannot earn our way onto the guest list of heaven. I mean, look at the list, look at the list of people that Jesus says, if you are the host, here's who you invite. Here's on, here are the people on the evite of the people that you should invite if you were the host. The host invites in the parable these sorts of people. You ready? The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Those are the ones who are invited to the party. Why? Well, because the host is God, and this is an agrarian culture, and people that are poor, crippled, lame, and blind were powerless, which means that the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, listen, are completely unable to earn their way in. But yet they're the ones who are invited. They're the ones whom the host invites to the party. They did not earn it. They did not deserve it. And that's the point. You can't earn your way into this gift, this party of heaven. It is a gift. Grace. Charis is the Greek word. Something which you neither earned nor deserved, but God gives it to you as a gift. All we are called to do is accept it, to accept this gift, this admission into heaven with humility. Not trying to buy our, buy our own way, because you can't, but rather by trusting in God and his mercy and grace. Tim Keller writes this. This is a great quote. He says, the gospel, the good news of Christianity is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet we are, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. That we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe, yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. This is the point, don't you see? And here's the question for you today. Do you believe that Jesus offers you a seat in heaven? And if the answer is yes, I'm going to ask you why. Why does Jesus owe that to you? In fact, it begs the question, does he owe it to you in the first place? And the answer is no. But do you believe that Jesus offers you a seat in heaven? And if the answer is yes, the answer is yes, not because of what you've done, you see, but maybe despite what you've done. If Christ offers you salvation, it's not because of what you've done, but what he has done in your place for you. If you have, are offered a seat at the wedding feast, it's not because you're a great person, you see, <laughs> thankfully, but because he is. And Jesus Christ loves you and I so much that he dies on the cross to pay for your sins and for mine to earn our way into the party. So here's the question as I wrap up. And this is a biggie. Are you on the guest list of heaven? Well, if you immediately say to yourself, yes. If you immediately run down in your mind all the great things you've done, all the, in, all the charities you've given to, all the wonderful things you've done, all the, all the things that God owes you, then guess what? You're not on the list, at least not yet. But if I say to you, are you on the guest list of heaven? And the only thing you can realize in your own humility is that Jesus died on the cross to save you. You're not perfect, but he is. If your heart goes to, I, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinful and wicked man, but you died for me, and you, you've paid my way in, 
You rely on Jesus' death on the cross to save you, to punch your ticket. If that's true, if you rely on Jesus to pull aside the velvet rope, right, and, what, and invite you into the front of the line, all you have to do is be humble enough to accept it. If I said to you, are you on the guest list of heaven, and you said, I'm not good enough, I cannot earn my way, God have mercy on me, then friends, welcome to the party. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus who reminds us that life is a celebration, that the end of this life is a party with you as the host and with us as your guests. Lord, remind us that it is only by the death of Jesus Christ in our place on the cross that we are worthy to stand before you and live, that our salvation is not contingent upon what we have done, but upon what he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.